on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. You know, the bottom line is almost all of us have wounding from when we were kids. And some of it's, you know, horrendous and some of it's, you know, <laughs> less. But unless you work it, unless you get to know that part of yourself, you're operating in shadow in from some part of yourself that you don't know. So what we do is we create an opportunity for every man to go very, very specifically. And we've got a way of refining it so that they go right after the... Uh, you know, the biggest wound that's holding them back in their life. And then with enormous support from these dozens and dozens of men, the energy field is so intense that most men just, they just, they just drop into it and they get to work that piece, which immediately lightens them up because they don't have to carry the burden of that, what we call shadow, that unknown, you know, hidden part of themselves. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Bill Koth, the resident visionary and co-founder of the Mankind Project, one of the most recognized men's organizations in the world. In 1984, Bill was working as a psychotherapist when he conceived and co-created the New Warrior Training Adventure. Since then, over 75,000 men in 12 countries have completed this neo-initiatory experience. In 1992, Bill also authored one of the first books for starting and running effective men's groups. A circle of men. In our episode today, he shares about these early days of what became the mythopoetic men's movement, including reaching out to Robert Bly during the heyday of Iron John. Bill shares some of the hard lessons learned along the way, and what inspires him about the current generation of men's work, and the alchemical power of holding space for men to open their hearts to each other. Also, this episode is released in tandem with my forthcoming interview with Jason McKenzie, one of the co-founders of Sacred Sons, a more recent men's organization that grew in part from the soil of the Mankind Project. I've chosen to release both conversations in sequence in order to offer a portrait of the similarities and differences between the generations. Before we begin, please consider becoming a patron supporter for this podcast. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive perks, including behind-the-scenes updates, bonus interviews, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Bill Koth. Welcome, Bill, to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. I'd love to begin by asking you to describe where you are right now. You know, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, anything that comes to you. <clears throat> physically in the back bedroom of our house here in Ashland, Oregon. We've been renting this place for 10 years. And man, I love being in Ashland, Oregon. This is the sweetest little town. I moved here 20 years ago, almost almost to the month from uh, Wisconsin, where I was <laughs> born and raised. Yeah, I feel, you know, fine physically and spiritually and emotionally, actually. Well, thank you for taking the time to, to join me here in this conversation. I was excited when uh, we were connected. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that 
in the research for this interview, I found there was actually many points of connection already in some of the you know paths and the people that we've met in our own journeys. And in particular, one key thread of this uh, conversation I'd love to explore is looking at the origin of the Mankind Project, which I'll give a little bit of my own experience first encountering the group. I believe it was back in maybe 2013. You know, I had a friend, another man who who somehow, you know, he'd found his way to to the group and he'd participated in the, uh, the New Warrior Training Weekend. And, you know, he came out of that as, you know, I'll say different, you know, different. And and in a in a beautiful way, and at the same time, there was a, you know, a kind of an invitational, you know, energy to him saying, you know, hey, you know, this is something you might want to check out too. And I will admit that, you know, during around that time, I hadn't really discovered men's work at all, and and so it was fairly new to me, and even felt edgy, right, for a lot of men that that haven't really done much of this thing, and it's just kind of like, you know, what would we do, to, you know. And so it took me a few years, actually, um, until I actually found my way through through other means, you know, into men's work. And, you know, I had a hit then after that. I was like, wow, you know what? Like, I feel like I need to do this. And I'll just say from the outside, after I did more research as well, the Mankind Project seemed to be seemed to be the largest and perhaps still the largest, you know, men's organization of its kind, you know, in the world. Now, you know, in 20 plus countries with over 80,000 men, you know, taking this weekend and and you know, sustaining beyond with these groups, I groups, you know, which you might touch upon. And so I just want to say that, you know, in the, in the ecosystem of men's work, again, like Mankind Project is like, you know, it's, it's it in, in a lot of ways. And so speaking with you as one of the, the co-founders, you know, is a great privilege and a gift. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited to dive in. And my first question then around this topic is to take us back to those early days, you know, before the organization. And, you know, and I discovered in my research, too, that you were a therapist or you called yourself a feminist therapist, I think, at the time. And I'd love to know, you know, what was the kernel of that uh, initial seed? Yeah, you know, in graduate school, I had done a lot of uh, reading and a ton of inner work. There was a, a place actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that was the equivalent to Esalen. And it brought in, you know, hotshot trainers from around the country and particularly Gestalt. And I, I love that stuff so much. I just couldn't get enough of it. Boy, I was in weekends all the time. <laughs> so I, um, discovered during that historical era that the powerful transformational energy was the feminist movement. And because I was a therapist and because I was hanging out with, you know, women that were really conscious feminists, I identified as a feminist therapist and at some point, uh, one of them invited me to the biannual Wisconsin Feminist Therapist Association. And now I had been in a men's group in the 70s for three or four years. I loved that group more than anything. That was also transformational for me. And so uh, I, I went to this conference and discovered that of the 125 feminist therapists, I was the only guy, as far as I could tell. And I had the eyes, because I had done so much gestalt work, I had the eyes to see evolved people, conscious people. And I was about like the middle of the second day, I'm standing in the lobby and it's all filled with these beautiful conscious beings. And I just, the, the, the realization that they were all women came over and it was like something just overwhelmed came over me. And it was like, oh, God damn it. Somebody's got to do something for the women. And like that finger pointing out, I suddenly pointed back and I'm, oh, shit. And I, oh, you know, and I realized that that was a call and it was in. And from that point on, I was like an obsessed guy. I just could not do anything else. It was, it was, <laughs> it was like the divine had, had given me the nod. So I, I, within a couple of weeks, I ran into an old friend named Ron Herring, who had a 
PhD in curriculum teaching at the University of Wisconsin. And I said, Ron, man, we got to do something for the men. You know, I just, this feels, and he said, Bill, you know, I honestly don't know what you're talking about, but I've got five sons. So I like your energy, whatever you're up to, I'm in. So, (laughs) and during that same time, there was an emotional cathartic training going on that I was participating in a lot called Understanding Yourself and Others. And through that, I had brought in um, a guy named Rich Tosi and his wife and his family. And because it was emotionally cathartic, I had seen his heart. I had seen his his, his grief, his sadness, his anger, his joy, his delight. And I, there's, there's just something about this guy that I just, just loved. So I got together with him. I said, Tosi, we got to do something for the men. <laughs> and he said, Bill, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I like your energy and I'm in. Subsequently, I found out that he couldn't have been more different from me in that he was a, literally, he was an executive of General Motors and had done 10 years in the United States Marine Corps. I mean, so different from me. But you've been through the training, so you know how that energy added in. And that was, oh, geez, that was just about this time, 35 years ago, precisely, almost like, you know, early summer. And by January of 85, we had cobbled together this training. (laughs) And it was like something flowed through us. And, you know, it was, it was, it was magical. We, we, we operated as total peers. There was never any hierarchy in the three of us. So by the time it flowed through us, um, you, you'd recognize it. It was, it, was, yeah. it was almost just the way it is now. I'd love to ask a couple of questions, too, on that. that you know, it's really fascinating to me to, to sense, like, the ecosystem or the tributaries that we're feeding into. Yeah. You know, that, that particular gestation. And in particular, you know, you mentioned like Gestalt and cathartic training. And mm-hmm. I think I even read uh, EST, right, which is Werner, Werner Erhardt's. Yeah, I deliberately general. did not do that. Um, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Like I just marketing. mean it's part of the movement at the time. I guess that's oh, what I'm was. saying. Yeah. Like, okay. You know what I mean? Like the, the, or the human potential movement. Yes. That's been, what it's been called. Yeah. So I feel like that, that was all kind of bubbling. It felt like it really right? was that, that, that you were involved with. And then suddenly there was this recognition at this conference that you, you recognize, wow, you know, where are the men? And yep. suddenly, you know, there was a, as you say, maybe it's a, a divine inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me to just name that because it feels important that, you know, this recognition that stuff doesn't come from nowhere. And, and for me, like the, the historical, you know, relationship to those elements is really key, I feel, to understand mm-hmm. like the historical context. Also, the fact that, like you say, that your call, your, your willingness to respond was really what you saw because of the, the women that were in many ways, you know, farther along yep. in this kind of development they work. Sure were. And so I just wanted to name that as, as a really important piece. Mm. So you were there at the table or whatever it was, as you say, this, uh, you know, lightning struck and suddenly uh, you had a sense of this initiatory, oh, maybe I won't even use that yet because what I recognized from the language was, you know, you, you sort of stumbled upon initiation just through what felt like what needed to be done. And in many ways, it was maybe like a, an ancestral memory of yes. something. That's perfectly put. We stumbled on initiation. Honestly, when, when I talk about I, uh, how this came, it's like uh, when I talked to these guys, I said, we need to do something for the men. We didn't know initiation. That word was not in our vocabulary. And, and literally, as, it, as we allowed it to pour through us into the world, uh, eventually, several years later, the word initiation, oh, you guys are doing initiation. We, we are? Oh, Cool. And then uh, Tosi started studying Robert Moore and archetypes. We didn't know the word archetypes. So, and we also <laughs> noticed in retrospect that what we allowed to flow through us uh, ha- had all those components also. It's uh, honestly very mythical. So it's, uh, it's yeah. appropriate. 
I'd love to hear then around the structure, um, the mythical structure of the weekends, uh, which takes place over three days, mm-hmm. you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I understand that the, the hero's journey yes. structure was very, was very alive in the, in the, you know, journey that you take the men on. And I'd love to hear about, you know, how you mapped the elements of the hero's journey to it. You know, we honestly didn't know that either. And we found that retrospectively was something that, that Joseph Campbell brought through. And, you know, we got the books and read them. But it's got all the classic components, you know, the, the deep descent, hard, hard descent. You know, some men don't even get through that part, you know. Mm. <laughs> As you know, it's yeah. it's a tough training. It just is. Yeah. And then, you know, the, 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 the kind of the heart opening um, inner work as the as the ordeal. And again, that's fierce. It's not easy. And, and it takes sometimes, you know, 50, 60 men to hold a container for the 30 initiates going through. Mm-hmm. And then the return, um, you know, we do a lot of ceremony and ritual on Sunday as part of the integration of the work that happens on Saturday. And then almost everywhere on the planet where we do this, about three days later, the men come back to their local community and all the brothers gather up. And welcome them home. It's just beautiful. I've been to hundreds of those. <laughs> it's so beautiful to see these men that have, you know, gone through this transformational journey open their hearts. What is the need or the longing that is being fulfilled there? I mean, I have some sense of it, you know, through my own understanding of the, you know, the cultural poverty uh, and the longing that men have to be drawn up into, you know, um, to be seen or to be to be witnessed, to be mm-hmm. integrated. You know, there's all these elements at play. And I feel for you, like, you know, even those first, the first gathering, which I understand was actually not called New Warrior Training. It was initially called The Wild Men yes. Weekend, you know, based <laughs> on Robert Bly's book, Iron uh-huh. John. And I wonder, can you take us back to those, you know, first, that first gathering? And, you know, what was the atmosphere? What were the men expecting? And what did they experience? Oh, the first one was, was really cumbersome. You know, there was just the three of us running it for 16 men, so we didn't have any staff, and it was just... Whoa. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> Given that we now have 50 staff that show up. And I loved, you know, Robert was clearly our mentor, and I love that, uh, like, he, he, him as the father of the men's movement was a poet, of all things, a poet. And he's the one that brought the word wild man forward with the Iron John story. So, um, you know, I called it the, the wild man weekend, and I wrote to him after the first weekend. I said, Robert, we did it. We, we created this men's weekend and we're calling it the wild man weekend, you know, in quotes, aren't you proud, dad? And he wrote back very quickly and he said, Bill, I'm really glad you're doing that work. And please do not use the word wild man because the media will pick it up and trash it just like they trash the women's movement. Um, and, and so we stopped using it. We just changed it. We decided to call it the New Warrior Training. So it still had that, that kind of fierce masculine energy. But, you know, it was very clearly at Robert's request that we changed the name. In the Michael Mead interview I did uh, a few months ago, he mentions these early days for him leading retreats, you know, in the Mendocino Woods and how when the media caught on what was happening, that there would be, you know, crowds of reporters, you know, gathering outside. And I wonder for you, was there a similar kind of a lag time before there was this sense of, hey, there's these men, you know, gathering in the woods and they're banging drums and around the fire. Because it feels like, you know, that's when the the kind of unkind, you know, 
cliche comes in that has been trotted out, you know, I would say over and over again, you know, largely in the media. And even still to this day, I would say even, you know, current articles have such a hard time talking about men's work and men's emotional vulnerability without ridiculing it. It's true. Uh, we finally, this like in the middle of last year, we had a New York Times article in which we were actually blessed and honored. It's the first time everything else has been just unbelievably derogatory over the years. In fact, in about the third, fourth year, Esquire magazine sent a spy in through and wrote this terrible <laughs> derogatory article. Wow. Yeah, so that kind of stuff um, happened a lot in the old days. So it's almost like yeah. finally after 30 years, men's work is being really recognized and appreciated for what it is. Mm. Why do you think that was so tough, though, for, for the culture at, at large to appreciate men's vulnerability? Because on the one hand, it seems like a, a complete paradox, right? That so many say, you know, men have to show their feelings more and they have to soften and they, you know, need to be able to understand, you know, their consequences, all these things. And yet in the presence of vulnerability and emotionality among men, largely they get ridiculed for it. So it's this total bind I feel many men are in. Yeah, no, my, my best my best guess is that the, the, the system, the structure, simply doesn't welcome that kind of uh, emotional literacy that we um, put into the world because it, it messes with economics the way we've practiced it. The pathological uh, structure uh-huh. uh, is threatened by this kind of work. It just is. I understand a key piece of the weekend, and I think of the larger you know, gestalt and, and personal growth movement, largely deals with shadow. Right, yeah. the the, oh, yeah. the kind of shadow work, yeah. And I know uh, Mankind Project has the word guts, right? Which mm-hmm. um, would you define it again for me, please? It's an acronym. No, it correct? isn't actually. That that it's um, it's just opening our guts <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> metaphorically, <laughs> you know, on what we call the carpet when we when each man has his opportunity to do his his personal uh, personal piece of inner work, and. Um, would you say a bit more about that too? Like maybe as a, you know, kind of like what are some broad examples of what you maybe see patterns that men work through in that space? Oh, I'll tell you a little quick fun story. When we first opened up Germany, we we, we kept going, oh, Germany. Oh my God, the Jews and the Nazis. Oh, we're, we're inviting everybody. To get, oh, it's going to be some, oh my God, you know, the inner work. Oh, so when the guys came back, they said, guess what the inner work was in, in Germany? Mother, father, mother, father, mother, father. So, the, wow. you know, the bottom line is, Almost all of us have wounding from when we were kids. And some of it's, you know, horrendous and some of it's, you know, <laughs> less. But unless you work it, unless you get to know that part of yourself, you're operating in shadow in from some part of yourself that you don't know. So what we do is we create an opportunity for every man to go very, very specifically. And we've got a way of refining it so that they go right after the... Uh, you know, the biggest wound that's holding them back in their life. And then with enormous support from these dozens and dozens of men, the energy field is so intense that most men just, they just, they just drop into it and they get to work that piece, which immediately lightens them up because they don't have to carry the burden of that, what we call shadow, that unknown, you know, hidden part of themselves. What are some other milestones that came then? Uh, you know, you've, you started the first training and then when did it begin to spill over and suddenly became, you know, bigger than your initial ideas of what could be, it could be. Yeah. Um, you know, within the first three or four years, we started to get a little reputation, <laughs> you know, enough. So the, the media, um, but, oh, you know, we had a one really good one though. The, the Milwaukee journal sent a guy in and he also kind of came in covertly. And I, I remember the Tosi 
during the accountability process saying, look, damn it, you're either here for you or get the hell out of here. And he went, oh, geez. So what happened is it, it saved his marriage. You know? So he went back to the journal and he, he wrote up an article. And then a few months later, you know, he was, he wrote up another very blessing article. So, so it, that's been good. So now I've, I've tracked off. Tell me the question again. What were some of the milestones then that happened oh, you know, yeah, through the, the through the history of the organization? We went up to one of the one of the Bly conferences up in Minnesota. Some some of us did, and um, we we just talked to the men there, and they went, "Oh man, we want that!" So they started sending carloads down, and they started hearing about us in Chicago, and they started sending guys up from from there, and so the Midwest opened fairly dramatically, and just about that time, I think it was two thousand, uh, Robert Bly's book Iron John sold a million copies. And we had been actually attracting men from the West Coast and the East Coast that would fly out to Milwaukee. Even around the world, we had guys coming in. And a lot of them stayed at my house because I was like the major organizer for those first seven or eight years. And um, and they were so juiced. It was so powerful for them that they'd go back to their, their cities in you know San Diego or San Francisco or Portland or D.C. or Indianapolis. or um, <laughs> And they would say, Men, brothers, and a lot of them had men's centers. You got to do this. You got to go do this thing. And next thing you know, they'd say, we want to be a center. So by the time Bly's book hit, we already had, I think, maybe a dozen centers in place adequately ready to, and we very deliberately started training trainers so that we were able to service the men who, um, they read Robert's book and they said, oh, I want this. I want, I want to have this kind of men's connection and open my heart in a good, safe way. So, they just poured in, so we grew dramatically after that first for, after that first five years. I understand. Then in ninety eight, was it that it became the Mankind Project? Like it was called something else prior to then? Yeah, I think we called it the New Warrior Network. And and how did the Mankind name come about? Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> we knew the name had to change because we'd already outgrown uh, the the, <laughs> the New Warrior Network. And so we put it out to the entire, you know, global community, and they sent in hundreds and hundreds of these names. And <laughs> we were in uh, in Southern California at our annual meeting, and we started, you know, sorting through these names and sorted it down to the top twenty-five. Oh God! And then the top top ten, <laughs> and the top three, and the lights went out in this big room. Lights were not. We cut some candles, and uh, some somebody said, you know. Kauth, you're a founder. Which one is it? And I had actually proposed a different name, but something about the Mankind Project with the capital K. Just, I said, it's the Mankind Project. And it was, it was, it was done. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, Ron, one of the founders had died and we, we, he, he was kind of a magician. We thought he's the one that turned the lights out from the other world, you know, not part of our mythology. Well, anyway, we, that, uh, one of the, one of the brothers, one of our leaders had been jogging one morning and that name came to him and, we just followed right through. We love it. It's been it's mm. been a great name for us. <laughs> wow. And how has that reflected then? What maybe what was the initial intention and and uh, seemed to be for putting men through a, a somewhat initiatory uh, journey? You know, of integrating the shadow of of bonding with other men. How did the Mankind Project, as a as a kind of widening of the scope, become like a, a updated mission? If that's if that is in fact true. Oh, boy. You know, I'm going to answer that by, by sharing one of the other details about our work that, that fits the, the mythic masculine theme here. Mm-hmm. Sure. Is that, and this, Ron and I had done so much inner work, Ron, Ron Herring, and, and spiritual work. And we, we had integrated that in a way so that we brought forward a piece in the training 
we call it the the mission work. And we we actually offer each man an opportunity to create a transpersonal mission. So it's not about getting a new car, or getting you know. It's about it's about how am I in service to the world? Now at that time, thirty five years ago, that was a bit of a radical you know piece. But every man walks out of that training with a transpersonal mission that's grounded in his body emotionally because from his emotional work, he has the opportunity to, to revisit that transpersonal mission. You know, actually, that's a pretty subtle piece of spirituality. And it's it was grounded in the training since the very first one. And I kept, you know, one of my fears over the years was that as the next generations came in and took over, that that would be stripped out. And it hasn't been at all. In fact, it's been enhanced. The sort of the what we might call the spiritual essence of this work continues to evolve and and become more, you know, more beautiful and sophisticated in a good way. Mm, that's beautiful. In terms of the, let's say the wave of that time, you know, I've spoken with other people like Martin Shaw who've recognized that it seemed that, you know, the peak seemed to have occurred, and that maybe throughout the 2000s even that felt like the movement had gone underground not that mankind project had per se but for example like when i encountered mkp and even iron john like nobody in my peer group you know had been talking about it really you know except the odd you know friend here and there and so i really felt like i tracked what felt like a reemergence and and i wonder again like did you also feel that with the kind of cultural moment like it sort of had gone you know, more quiet in a sense, or did you feel like you were you and the move or the organization had just continued to, you know, like move move into different places as you were invited, and and it continued on, you know, sort of unfettered. Yeah, uh, kind of like the women's movement, you know, seemed to fade. The men's movement faded, but we never did. We've been growing consistently now for thirty five years, and it's been pretty much one man at a time. It's been pretty much word of mm. mouth. We've never done any advertising. I just think, honestly, that men are so hungry, just so desperately, deeply hungry for what we have to offer, that once they find their way in and, you know, have a safe place, that's all they need. It's all we men need is a safe place to open our mm-hmm. hearts. And once they have that experience of, of growing in that way, so dramatically, you know, learning to actually trust and love other men with their hearts open, with, with the emotional literacy, they can hardly wait to tell their friends. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's grown all over the planet. And it just, it keeps amazing me, frankly. I'm a pretty good visionary. And I, I knew we were going to go overseas, you know, to England and, and Europe. Mm. But boy, I tell you, being in South Africa and, and, and New Zealand and, and Australia, and now we're, we've just opened up Mexico and South America has got some, some guys coming in. Yeah. And, and even the middle of Africa, some of those countries are opening up now. It's just, it's amazing. And it's all because of the, the, the hunger that men have in this uh, kind of, rigid structured society that you know with the with really terrible values so yeah so we're, we're there to provide it and um what are some of the critiques then over the years that have been you know surfaced that have been sort of recognized you know not necessarily even within the organization but even culturally speaking you know because for example you know you you speak about um the necessity of the return right and what i've understood from yeah. like a, a kind of culturally in, initiated uh practice is that the men wouldn't sort of go off for a weekend, you know, and then come back, but that it would be part of a, you know, much more sophisticated, you know, elaborate unfolding of ceremony and, and you know, way of life in a place throughout a year. You know, I'm speaking of like Martin Prechtel's book and talking about, you know, a kind of 
yeah, like a cultural expression of that. And I think what you're speaking to is, of course, so many modern people actually don't have this cultural embedment anymore. And so I, I wonder, like, has that been recognized as a kind of inherent limitation? It's sort of like, you know, you can only get so far and it's really beautiful. And yet mm-hmm. it's almost like at a certain point we hit this, this you know, poverty that can't sustain itself beyond, you know, much further. Thank you. That's that's that actually speaks to one of the things I consider beautiful about this. After the first couple of years, we realized that it was so powerful and transformational that men were going back and they were searching for something. They were searching for a way to hold it and contain it. And so we realized that they needed to have follow up, basically men's support groups. And I had been doing that professionally uh, for years. So I had a template ready to go. So I brought it forward and I trained some of the, you know, bright young guys in the Milwaukee area and they were able to hold space then for the men coming out of the trainings in what we came to call an integration group because the training itself mm-hmm. is so powerful. It takes at least six months just to integrate the stuff. And yeah. some of those groups are still going, honestly, 20, 30, some of those groups, you know, once men, once men bond up, they find a friendship level that they have never known before. And so they, they have a lot of intention to stay in it. And actually, it's one of the things I'm profoundly proud of in terms of the work right now. We have 10,000 men that sit in circle every week, someplace on the planet. That's a thousand groups, roughly. <laughs> and those are just the ones we know about. And what that does is it sustains community. And everything I've kind of devoted my life to the last, for the last 10 years to building community because it's been so shattered by our culture. And, it, and, and we humans need that. We need that profoundly. So these integration groups, they they not only meet for the growth of the men in it, but they, they they become a social center because they become you know cherished friends. So eventually they have social events with their women in their lives and their kids and stuff, and that that builds community. And I, I consider that a precious contribution. Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. One of the other critiques I found is uh, a kind of integration of indigenous practices, you know, that, that I, mm-hmm. in reading even the research at the time of, of the history of MKP and also, you know, other groups that were starting that, you know, in some ways there's a, a kind of, I don't know, easy, easy in quotations, you know, accessibility of what feels like mm-hmm. a kind of cultural frame or artifacts, like, you know, the talking piece, like the, mm-hmm. you know, words, uh, particular words. And I wonder, again, you know, maybe in the earlier days, if there was a, a kind of, I don't know, cultural naivete, um, oh, which, God, yes. you know, yeah, and, and, and I wonder how has that evolved since then, you know, like in terms of internally and, and you know, the conversations that have been had? <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, last, it was about a week ago, I was invited to the annual uh, meeting of our MKP, Lodge Keeper Society. We have a lodge on the weekend, and and the men who uh, who hold who pour water in that lodge are like the shamans. And every community, it seems, has these shamans, these men that are just called to this spirit. They have these spiritual gifts, and they're just called to be of service in that way. So literally, men from all over the planet would come to this meeting. You know, this was a tough year; they had to do it online, of course. But these beautiful shamanic men in, in, in all these centers around the world who get together and they're so precise in their language and they're caring. And the guy that founded that, is his name is Curtis Mitchell, who I'm enormously fond of. He'd be a great guest mm. for, for your show. Mm. He, uh, as, a, as, a, as a bright young man, took the opportunity to hang out with uh, uh, the Lakota people. And mm. he was just of, of service for like 10 years, driving the elders around and that sort of thing. And, you know, he, and he'd sit in the lodge and, and one day one of the elders said to him, you know, Curtis, you know, 
I'm not feeling too good today. Would you mind pouring? And he said, what, me? What? He said, yeah, Curtis, we've been watching you for 11 years now. You're ready. And he said, oh, okay. So when he came into uh, into the training, he saw that the lodge that we we're doing was atrocious, which it was. I, I We just kind of made it up. And so he actually went to the chief. And this is a, a complex story. It's subtle and complex. But he got permission to do a very precise lodge for people outside of the uh, of, of the native community he'd have to tell you that story it's very precise mm. but it, it 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 feels good like we we take a lot of care to not be appropriating anything that's mm-hmm. inappropriate mm. to, to to use without permission mm-hmm. so anyway I, I just want you to know I, I feel good about that i've just had this conversation yeah. with curtis just within the last several months because that issue keeps kind of rolling up and we have to tell the story mm-hmm. the story incidentally is not written down it's oral tradition so you kind of almost have to hear it from from curtis mitchell sure yeah yeah thanks for that one of the critiques that i've heard if i you know talk about mkp or, or other kind of men's organizations is often this feeling of secrecy right that it's yeah this sort of private fraternity or this kind of stuff and you know um i we were just chatting just before this but you mentioned that there has been a shift and i would love mm-hmm. to hear that you know that that maybe what was the reason for a sense of secrecy early on and then how did that shift you know after a time um i, I guess i'm responsible for that i did a bunch of research and someplace in the in the literature it just said men's initiation processes are always secret so i built a line like that into the training in which we publicly state these secret, these processes are all secret and what what oh boy this uh, when we when we created it we honestly didn't know how serious guys would take it like i tell the story about one guy that came in the third about the third year he came back to staff and he had a tattoo of the logo on his arm i went whoa these guys are really taking this serious and the same was true of what we spoke you know so when we asked for secrecy they went okay everything is secret and that's not that's not our intention but that but they it, it became too secret and that that actually became a problem after a while so um in uh we we've just had our 35th year celebration at the, the gala and it had to be online but uh but the 25 was really significant for us when we were 25 years 20 when we were 25 years old 10 years ago one of our esteemed brothers <clears throat> a guy named George Durani had this vision of let's mark the first 25 years as you know the years that it was that we were building in secret and let's bless that and let's move on let's get out into the world let's open everything else everything up so absolutely at this point nothing is secret if you guys want to know what's going to happen we we suggest you know it'll be more powerful for you if you don't know but if you want to know we'll tell you mm-hmm. and we've also opened our work up to into the world um you know supporting other men's projects that that come forward and, you know, using social media to uh, actually help men get a feel for what it's like to be in a men's group. So we've reached out a great deal. We've, we've gone from kind of this closed secret thing to, you know, really blossoming in the world. And we join, um, you know, summits as, as um, you know, co-sponsors and all that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's working. Men are getting, yeah. getting even more uh, benefit from our, our work. And how has your own journey been then over the years? I understand that you've shifted. Uh, I think the title I saw was was you know vision, visionary in residence or something like that. And, <laughs> yes. and I wonder, yeah, how was that transition from maybe being more active? I, it sounds like you're obviously still active, but but from maybe directly active into a different role. You know, when did that happen, and, yeah. and how did that happen? You know, one of the phrases that we use for our work is we we are living the giveaway. 
and men come and they staff and they literally pay for their room and board to staff to be there available. So we'll have, you know, 50, 60 men on staff for those 30 men and they all pay their own way to be there to be of service. So there's a, there's an enormous labor of love uh, in this thing. And we started it that way. We started it as a giveaway. It was it was in our hearts. We you know we just weren't doing it to make money. We were doing it because the world needed it. And so as founders, uh, we weren't asked what we wanted for ten years actually. So we were ten years in, and the chairman at that time asked me because Tosi was still president of the, of the of the board, so to speak. The council asked me what I wanted, and I said, "Oh man, you know what I what I want is I want to see it on the council." I'd like one percent of my creation, and I because we were we were kind of financially tight. And I, I figured one percent, you know, big deal, and and I want the title visionary at large because <laughs> it sounded so cool. And they went, "Totally, you got it. You got your one percent." So I've been we've been getting Tosi and I've been getting that one percent now for you know twenty five years actually, and it really helps. Now we're both you know in our middle late seventies and that and. Um, you know, visionary at large means I get to do whatever I want, and and I I, I staffed a couple of years back because one of the guys in my integration group, my men's support group, he just needed he need he needed to do the training. So we said, you know, you know, Eric, if you go do this training, we'll all be there. We'll staff with you. And of course, it popped his life open, and he made the changes he needed to make. Mm-hmm. So I get to see it every so often, and I sit on the, I sit on the boards, and. The, the men, I, honestly, they're so competent. And even the leaders that, that lead the trainings and stuff are so much better than I was way back then, you know, because everything's gotten more sophisticated and these beautiful, competent guys keep coming in. And the ones that do the administrative stuff, again, we just, uh, we've got lovely, lovely men, uh, powerful men, competent men holding, holding that space. Mm-hmm. So I get invited to, uh, <laughs> to do talks like this. And I get invited to come to some, uh, you know, some of the events to, to do a talk every so often. It's so I, ser- I serve at my leisure. It's been good life. And I've been in my own men's support group for many, many years still. What do you notice that's different than today in, in general, maybe in the cultural moment than it was then, you know, when you started the organization? Uh, one of the things that that's significantly um, <clears throat> different is that, in fact, our mutual friend Charles Eisenstein did a critique when he did the training, and he said that the accountability process looked too much like one of those big trainings that everybody did back in the old days, <laughs> mm. and it's dated. He, that was his phrase. So, you know, we, we looked at that, <clears throat> and we said, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's too focused. The men are much more mature and sophisticated coming in, you know, these are the guys that are coming in now. These are our kids and our grandkids. And so they've got, got the benefit for the work we've been doing for 20 years just because we're their dads and their their, their granddads. Mm. So the young men coming in, boy, we, we barely have to say the word accountability and they're standing up ready to work. So there's been a lot less of that kind of theatrical structure and more just authentic work. Let's, let's get her done. Let's jump in and grow. <laughs> so. Wow. And what do you see in terms of the cultural moment? You know, we've had Me Too, of course, um, you know, burst on the scene, racial inequality and injustice, of course, presently. Like, how is that different than now in terms of, you know, men's work or, or what is a kind of appropriate men's response, men's men's healing work look like, you know, within this kind of context? Mm. 
We've been very devoted to, uh, you know, racial and sexual integration from, I mean, like from forever. So once men start to open their hearts, oh, God, that that just happens. It it does. You know, I have a great story. My dad was a guy, he went through the training when he was 80. No, no, he was 70, 75. He was 75, and he had terrible emphysema, but he trusted me enough to go through the training. And he got to do a piece of inner work. You know, we talked about this inner work. Oh, this time. <laughs> he got to bury my sister, who had died 30 years before that, and he was still carrying the wound. So he got to transcend that incredible grief in his heart. And it made the last five years of his life so much lighter and better. But, but we, we've been doing it with a lot of passion, a lot of intention. And because we're, we're international now, and have been, we've been international for a really long time, there's cultural differences that factor in. At one point, we made a decision to allow each of the, each of the countries to recreate the training in a way that serves their culture, you know, using the myths from their particular culture. And that's, that's added a, a, a kind of a local richness in, <clears throat> into this international brotherhood. Yeah, that's a really beautiful point, I think, because, you know, one of the questions I've grappled with often is, you know, on the one hand, any any attempt at trying to work with or, or to heal what feels like a, a kind of, you know, universal or the wound of universality, they could say, you know, that that modern culture so much is about kind of imposing a, a universal right on how men should be and mm-hmm. this and that. And, and therefore coming up with a response that is also universal feels again, you know, it's like problematic because it doesn't reflect like local diversity, as you said, mm-hmm. or, you know, specifics to, to a region. And so I do think it's a really important point that you're saying that you're able to open it up to allow for that, specificity, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is also part of what kind of ecologically speaking is the intelligence of a life is to be specific, mm-hmm. actually, right? But maybe to carry the same spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I hear that, I think, in what you're saying. What have you noticed then in some of the, some of the local regions? Like um, maybe some of the reports that have come from, you know, them doing a, a kind of specific flavor and what are the types of things that they are incorporating? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking mostly of, of Australia and New Zealand. And um, I know the... The Australian guys have built in a lot of the Aboriginal stories, at least into their work in 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 a, in a really compassionate way. And we actually have a a brother who's one of our best leaders, by the way. He's a Maori guy from from New Zealand, and I believe he's built some of the those stories into their trainings also. And South Africa, it, it's been a center for a long time. It, it's been it's been really powerful, and both Cape Town and um, Johannesburg. You know, I've got strong centers, and they're they've been reaching out to the the, the Zulu people and the Tosa with the click. <laughs> and I've seen, uh, I honestly, I've seen, I I've been there a couple times, and I've been in in like the townships, and my God, that was that was scary, and it still touches my heart. And they've been reaching out to some of the other countries in Africa lately, and, and getting quite a response. So, yeah. It seems like this longing to to you know to to connect to bond to to go through an initiatory process like seems to be because of the absence of of culture or like an absence of you know land based real culture 
And mm-hmm. so it's fascinating to me that you could say that, you know, these other regions have actually also been drawn to it because that it speaks to me that, you know, the same kind of uh, um, poverty has also inflicted them in places that yep. maybe I would have thought, you know, that they would have been much more intact. Yep. Yeah, no, the, the, the wounds of corporate capitalism have gone around the planet. It's, um, you know, it's it's been a horror story for several hundred years, um, stripping people of their souls and replacing it with consumerism. You, you know this stuff, and it's, um, it's, it's unbelievably horrible. And to find um, a place where you can reopen your heart to authenticity and to... Um, to nature and to each other, and then to find a community where that's where that's supported is no small thing. And that's why I'm I'm pleased to have the you know a thousand groups around the world, in which men can sit in the safety of each other to uh, to heal the craziness that we most of us were born into. I remember in the '50s that there our generation we were the first television generation, so we learned very very quickly, and we learned that we were growing up absurd. We were growing up in in pathology, and we couldn't name it, but we knew it hurt. We knew it was crazy. So I in Wisconsin there used to be riots during the six, '50s and '60s. Every little town it seemed every time there's a festival, the young people were were rioting. And it, for no explicable reason. And then, um, when the Vietnam War came in, all of that kind of youthful, angry energy about the system, so to speak, subtle, very difficult to speak, but that, that focused on Vietnam, right? And I think the same thing is true now. I think the millennials and the young people, they get that we live in an insane culture and they don't quite know what to do about it. So, um, I honestly, I take some big hope in the possibility that this is this, this is the new generation standing against the craziness of our culture. I have a, qu- a question then about, yeah, turning again to this space that of men being with other men, and and I'm really curious, like, what is the alchemy that goes on there? Because now, you know, I've been in a number of men's spaces now, you know, but only you know five-ish years, and you've spent decades, and and I wonder again, what is it about the alchemy that is possible with men that can't seem to be otherwise, you know, in other spaces? (laughs) You know, it's a very similar answer is that growing up in this competitive culture, we men were were trained to compete with each other, to see each other as the enemy, as the competitor. And, um, you know, friendships were not valued. But once we get into the support group with uh, having learned some some emotional literacy skills, learning to, you know, be able to identify our, our grief, particularly our grief, um, we, we see each other's hearts and kind of fall in love with each other. And because it's a safe container that can go on for weeks and months and years. And, and as that happens, there's a kind of a qualitative shift in our being in the world, which leads to um, seeing the possibility of different uh, you know, economic structures and different ways of being. Yeah, I love the way Charles Eisenstein talks about uh, all this stuff as, you know, we, we, we know the more beautiful world is possible. We know that. Mm. And that mm-hmm. has happened from us taking the time to, to learn to, to, to fall in love with each other. And particularly mm-hmm. men learning to trust each other again is huge. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because, you know, depending on who you talk to, I'll, I'll speak with men and they'll say, what do you mean? You know, most guys trust each other and, and have a kind of easy camaraderie, which, which I would say is very surface, actually. Right? Mm-hmm. Most men experience it maybe as more surface and, and mistake that for a kind of depth that, you know, once, once 
able to access is like a whole other territory. Um, you know, I, I, there's a story many years ago, or about three years ago, I was teaching uh, one of my first sort of, well, just giving one of my first talks about this subject, actually at a festival in Australia. And I was sitting, I was sitting, uh, you know, with a group of people, it was a mixed gender group. And, you know, I asked uh, the men, you know, how many of you sit in circle with each other with any regularity? Uh-huh. And nobody put their hand up. Uh, none of the men put their hand up. And except, and the one guy in the front, he was an older fellow, and I just love his response. He just goes, what would we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and and I thought that was so telling that, that, you know, of course, and then I asked the women the question, how many of you sit in circle with any regularity? And 75%, you know, put their hands up. Uh-huh. So there was this this kind of knowingness, of course, that the women had experienced and that the men just, it was so far away from uh, even a sense of what the value might be in this case for, you know, that particular group, that it's almost like, you know, again, many men don't know actually until they've actually touched that place. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, again, there's this whole other possibility that happens. And I love how you linked it to then, you know, how does that actually relate to the world as it is? Because, you know, I think part of the wound of how men are grown up or, or conditioned in this culture is it kind of the, the condition to be numb. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and in many ways, the only way to perpetuate, you know, continual wrongdoings, the only way to, you know, blow up uh, rainforest or burn it down mm-hmm. for, you know, grazing or, or any of this stuff is if you don't feel it. Right. And yep. so in some sense, I do see this work as the, the capacity to really reawaken feeling yep. as the gateway to, you know, right, right action at this time. Mm-hmm. Well put. Yeah. And I wonder how, how do you see that then in, in how, you know, in, in many ways you've had you have multiple generations now with the Mankind Project. We and, have. Yeah. And what do you see now as like the edge of what's emerging with this work? Um, boy, I, honestly, I think um, kind of what I just said about the uh, the new generation waking up and taking action in a way that we, you know, didn't even imagine possible. For example, I loved um, what, what was a what was that big action that was in New York City um, against Wall Street? Oh, Occupy Wall Street. O- Occupy. Thank you. <clears throat> Occupy. There was a sophistication in in those young people in terms of how they communicated, even their nonverbal signals of of complete integration and deep listening with each other to figure out how to do it better in the world. And I mean, just the name, uh, I mean, just the, the, the word occupy brought forward the sense of, of the 1%, which has been controlling our world for way too long. And just bringing that forward so that we know it. So they both had the, the cognitive historical understanding of what's going on and some sense of how to how to deal with it, how to come together to create community to deal with it. So honestly, I take some hope in that. That, that was several years ago, and I, I kind of think the Black Lives Matter is the, is the latest iteration of that consciousness of the young people. Mm-hmm. What do you say to others, you know, in your age group that, you know, maybe have... Uh, waited too long <laughs> to to participate in in you know vitally standing for and maybe using you know the resource that they have to be effective and purposeful you know to support this this transition yeah you know i mentioned that the uh, mkp has got these subsets and one of them is the lodge keeper society another is the elders 
And we've been bonded around the world. We, every year we have the, you know, the, the World Elder Gathering, and a couple hundred of us come together. And there's always the intention to figure out what it is that we can do as elders at this time in our life to make a difference. Sometimes it's, you know, it's working individually as, as, as mentors. Sometimes it's, it's uh, creating structural changes or getting active in one way or another. But we support each other in that process. Mm. And what do you see as some of the impacts from that? You know, whether it's, as you say, conversation or mentoring and maybe, you know, redistribution of wealth or investing, you know, in particular, you know, leaders. (laughs) Don't don't I wish. (laughs) And my my sense is that as as the men evolve and and get this, uh, this internal commitment to do something, they get involved in those kinds of projects. And they share it with each other. Every so often, I get a note from from one of the one of the brothers saying, "Hey, I'm I'm working on this, and I'd like you to know about it, or you know, get involved in it if it feels right to you." So those actions are happening, and and you know, tiny things like guys, you know, stepping up to to mentor young people in in our community that, that that's been happening pretty consistently. So that's that's kind of stuff that's not terribly visible, but it does happen, and men take a lot of pride in it. And we have a lodge here; it's an elders' lodge. In Ashland, I think there's about 35 of us, and we meet once a month and kind of touch hearts. It's It's been a beautiful creation. And uh, during the check-in, men will often share the stuff that they're doing in the community. And, uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's happening. It's beautiful. Is there anything you wanted to touch on? You know, that we're kind of winding down with the, the time, and I would love to just, you know, open it up to what you feel to say. I don't have anything ready to to share. This has been a great interview. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I love that you and I share uh, the connection with Charles Eisenstein from back in 09. And and you and I have had an appreciation of him. And it was your video of him that made me a fan of yours. (laughs) And Charles um, did a thing here. And we, we brought him out in 09. It was called Seeding the Gift Culture. And we brought people in from all over the West Coast. And we spent four days together, and it led to a whole bunch of projects. And one of those projects is what Zoe and I have created, which is called Time for Tribe. And what we're doing is we're helping people build communities. Now, this is, you know, uh, ideally building on the men's support groups, but it's communities of men and women together that are deeply safe because we know how to how to <clears throat> make it safe for both genders to be with each other which I've been waiting for for about 30 years. They used to call it gender reconciliation. And we're actually doing it now. There's been enough men that have done their inner work and enough women that have done their inner work that the time is right for for, for us to build these conscious communities of men and women that are connected, uh, authentically intimate and safe, and committed to each other. This is one of the one of the words that doesn't work in our, you know, crazy too fast culture is the word commitment but we find that it's it's really important to make commitments to uh to stay together to be together and to stay together and to do it in a healthy supportive way and our tribe's been together for seven years now there's there's 20 of us and it's half men half women singles couples and we meet every single week so it's like a uh, a men's support group or women's support group Except it's it's mixed and it has its same you know intimacy and supporting each other as we grow and evolve in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's what uh, Zoe and I have been um, devoted to for the last about ten years, and uh, we've been taking it as a we've been doing it now as an online course. Mm. I remember in the research it was named that you actually met 
your partner Zoe at Burning Man. We did. We met at Burning Man. Yeah. And I wonder, actually, could you describe what that encounter was like? (laughs) Sure, sure. It was a great guy named Gordon Clay that we both knew who uh, (laughs) had been a burner for a while. So uh, he figured out a way to get us together. And uh, we fell in love rather, rather quickly. And that was 05. And we got together in 06 and got married in 08 and had become... Long-time sweethearts now and and colleagues in this project of building tribe. Yeah. What did you recognize then also at Burning Man? You named earlier that you'd been four times. And I'm just curious, what did you recognize then with these themes, you know, of of community, of, Mm -hmm. you know, myth, of creativity? Because I, as I said, I've been there six times and, and, you know, I've taken a lot from my experience there. And again, I wonder someone with your experience, your lens, you know, like, what did you see there? (laughs) The, as you know, the whole thing is operated on the giveaway, and it's designed that way, and everybody brings a gift. You know, it may be a song, it may be coffee, it may be <laughs> vegetables. <laughs> That's one of, my, one of my favorite memories. The first time I was there, I was, in, out, I was walking the playa, and it was all dusty and hot, and, and suddenly out of the mist, is this, this French maid is standing there with a, um, <laughs> with a little silver plate with... Uh, fresh cherry tomatoes on it and i went oh my god can i have one of those and she said oh we we monsieur (laughs) (laughs) so i um i use that as my my metaphor for burning man as as the giveaway i agree that yeah there is some kind of frequency there that happens when there is this spirit of of giving you know that that it's sort of it, it disarms, you know, in a way that yeah, I think yeah, many people in the modern culture of which you know we're very much ongoingly in this uh, you know race to accumulate and to you know have more than the other, and it's almost like there's an expectation when you encounter someone in the quote you know default world that they're going to you know uh, take advantage of you until you know until mm-hmm. they prove otherwise. There's this sort of base level fear, and I think at Burning Man, uh, like I experienced that there was a switch switch that happened that suddenly you know there was a capacity to be in this curiosity with every encounter you know to say oh you know where's this going to go you know if we say yes to it you know with some discernment but yeah the real beauty is unlocked mm-hmm. and i feel like that very much so is a is a, a kind of i don't know expression of the possibility that you know could really invigorate our our ways of being together you know not just mm-hmm. you know uh, at a festival in the desert, but also at you know society at large. You know the fact that there's an ethic in Burning Man that there's you, you can't buy or sell anything. There's just no need for money. Everything is a giveaway. Creates a culture in which that's possible, and that's what we've created in our in our in our local tribe. You know, there's just no money. It's just we, we give away to each other, and the same thing happens in the in the integration groups in the men's groups. So they learn to live from that place of the giveaway in a small micro community. Which, you know, I mean, my big hope is that that would expand, you know, dramatically into larger society. Mm. I'm really fascinated by this idea, too. You know, you, you spoke of the, the these integrated communities of men and women. And, yeah. like, I, I just want to emphasize, though, that I also feel like I've been tracking what, you know, I've tried to understand as as almost like cells of a healing culture. That's uh-huh. one way to think about it, right? Yes. Like, because I'm also, you know, I've been many years now visiting a community in Portugal called Tamera. Oh, I love it, yes. Um, of which, yeah, they do a lot of work, of course, trying to essentially create communities of trust. Yep. And, and you know, I've really been in this question over the last few years uh, about, you know, it's difficult to imagine or to, to bring together the effort to 
you know, create a 200 person community, you know, like Tamara. Oh, which, yeah. You know, that took them, you know, 40 years and, and they've done incredible work. And at the same time, you know, how accessible is that to most people that live, you know, in a modern context? Yep. yep. In, a, in, a, in a city where often even the very grid of the city, right, is actually built uh, not for connection, you know, not for a kind of natural way of being together. Um, and so how does one create, like you said, a, a kind of miniature community of trust? Yep. And that's what I see when I started to read about you know, this initiative. And I'm really curious, again, uh, the key piece I feel is, again, this, this question of shadow. Right mm. within these small <laughs> communities, because yeah, as soon as you get through the surface, you know the they're like, hey, everything's fine. You know, all of a sudden, you, whoa, you got a lot uh, just there. And I wonder again, what are the tools and processes that you have in order to create that trust or to navigate that? So a couple of different things here. Um, one is what we've created uh, is is more of a clan than a tribe, and what we've been looking forward to doing in Ashland is to having other clans. So they're all you know, there may be a dozen or twenty. People and then those clans get together as kind of like an intertribal gathering at least once a once a quarter maybe once a month and that would build to the you know the tribe I don't know if you know Dunbar's number but it's one hundred and forty four point nine all the you know tribes around the world and so I have the intention to build that and uh, you know talk about shadow I honestly you know it's like uh, when we first started the men's work we had this gold this beautiful thing you know and nobody knew what we were talking about and I feel like I'm in a place again we've got this. These, these tribes, these, these communities, we have all the technology and it's so hard to find the champions, the people that are willing to step up and say, yeah, I've got some skills, I can do that. And I don't know what the shadow is there. I don't know what the fear is and the reticence. And I keep trying to, you know, to find that. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I want to share another thing. You, you mentioned these, these small um, groups as, as the catalysts for the larger tribe mm-hmm. community. Healing culture. Um, I've been studying Meg Wheatley's stuff lately. She's got a new book called uh, Who Are You Now? Who Are We Now? And um, she talks about islands of sanity and the importance of creating, yeah, there it is, you know, the uh, these, these these small groups. She, she kind of warriors of spirit and creating these islands of sanity. And um, the whole first part of her book, she talks about empires. She's studied Tainter and some of the other uh, people that have studied about and all empires go through precisely six phases. The United States empire is in the sixth phase right now. So our current president is not an aberration. This is what happens to cultures in this, in this stage of decline. So that's part of my sense of why we particularly need to build our local communities, our little islands of, of sanity to get through this, um, this collapsing time in our culture. Mm-hmm. I hear that and the necessity of that. And also there's this fear in me of this this kind of gated community mentality, you know, that also happens where it's a sort of, a, you know, save the, save yourself or save the the people that are in your same, you know, mm-hmm. category of, uh, of wealth. And I mean, I know in other countries that uh, do have much more of a, a kind of obvious stratification that that is a very real thing. You know, there's the kind of haves and have nots and they're, they're kind of islands of, you know, ease in the midst of most people that don't have access. And I guess I'm curious again, yeah, how to, mm-hmm. how to not invoke that, you know, as a response, um, which I see a lot of the wealthy are, you know, in many ways building their bunkers and all the rest. And uh-huh. sort of the, you know, the rest got to fend for themselves. And I hear your spirit of what you're saying is different. And I wonder yeah, how to really kind of name that. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a authentic fear because the communities we're talking about actually are exclusive. And um, most of the people in our 
in our tribe, for example, like the men in the integration groups, what happens is that as they grow, as they evolve, as they get to a place where life is working, they look around one day and they say, you know, I'm fulfilled. Oh my God, I'm fulfilled, overflowing, and there's nothing to do but give. <laughs> and then they're, they're, they become these these giving beings that then the, the men particularly, I'm going to jump back to the transpersonal mission that they did when they did the training. It's like at, once they've done the work to make their life work, they go, what now? What, what's, oh my God, I got that transpersonal mission. I'm devoted to taking care of kids. That's what my, or I'm devoted to taking care of, you know, people in incarcerated or, and so, so that, that, that activates and then they become active in the world. So I'm suggesting that, that those of us that are in these, in these communities or in these tribes will be doing the work to kind of ameliorate the need for those, um, gated communities, ideally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I see it's a tough one. You know, I have thought about that question too, though, about how I think the longing for this, this desire to be seen or to be, mm -hmm. to be, I don't know, whole, all of these things, in some ways they can seem very, very distant as, as possible, you know, as in, maybe I'll phrase it differently. Um, you know, I've thought about this in how it actually doesn't take much to, to achieve that level of feeling, of feeling seen, of being held, mm -hmm. uh, of intimacy. It doesn't actually take that many people to, to achieve that, you know, as you've named in my experience as well. Yep. And in some ways, it, it actually does have a necessity to create boundaries. Because, you know, I've been in men's groups as well, where they were, if they were too open and, you know, people are dropping in, you know, it knew people each week, it couldn't achieve that level of intimacy that then created the trust yes. that then, you know, real transformation or real fulfillment could happen. And then from that place to then be able to, you know, engage with the world, I think was actually really vital. So, uh -huh. you know, I do see that there's this necessity to create boundary and exclusivity in a sense, but then turning towards the world again yeah. and turning towards, like you say, the, the place of service is yes. also really vital, lest, lest there's an instinct to just simply remain you know, in one's own isolated bubble. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, beautifully put. Once, mm -hmm. we, once we find our own heart, uh, it's time to give, time to be of service. Yeah. You know, the, I'm back to this question too around the use of language because mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I study with Stephen Jenkinson, as I mentioned, and um, we looked at etymology a lot of the time uh -huh. and, and the origin of words. And I actually looked up the word tribe, you know, after reading <laughs> yes. some of this stuff. Uh -huh. And for me, I recognizing that it's a Latin word yes. initially, and, and maybe you know <laughs> yeah. more about it, but tri typically means three. And then the B, and, and again, the B-E, I wasn't sure if that was related to being or like three as in, you know, more than a few, you know, uh -huh. being together. Maybe that's one way to to, to think of it. And... At the same time, it does have sort of colonial context, you know, as it's often used to to denote a, a sort of distinction between, you know, the modern and then the the savage, you know, or the, the you know the tribe or the tribal. And so, I just wonder, you know, how do you walk that line then with this? You know, does the language ever feel alienating to some people, or particularly, yeah. you know, First Nations or others that feel, you know, because a modern context of tribe often means like an indigenous tribe, for example, you know, as a sort of important distinction whereas tribe in a context of community like you're saying mm -hmm. can al almost feel a bit 
Yeah, a bit appropriative. So, uh, you know, like, but I know the spirit of what you're saying is actually, yeah. like we're saying, these, these kind of intimate groups of healing. So, again, I wonder how you how you walk that line or what conversations have come up. Yeah, we get that feedback every so often. But, you know, what you just said is tribe is an ancient Roman word, actually. So uh, for a while, we were using the word community and it was community for everything. And what we kind of discovered was that everything is a community. There's the healing community and the, you know, and the whole foods community, the the yoga community and ah, oh, so it was the word was too big so we wanted something that was a little bit more familial and there's something about tribe that has that you know intentional family energy so we just kind of fell in love with the word and chose to use it and and <laughs> and now now there's all these online tribes you know so that word has become almost too generic already just in in uh, describing yeah. any group of people that gets together around a given issue or topic yeah. Maybe I'll just offer this that, you know, the word that I feel has been most I guess useful for me in understanding mm-hmm. this this impulse, you know, this uh, emergent uh, response is village. Uh-huh. But I also I also don't really like to use it as a noun, you know, because I think that when village is used as a noun, uh-huh. it conjures this idea of a bunch of people living, you know, somewhere together, yeah. uh, maybe in, in different kinds of dwellings, you know, this and that. Whereas I think it's more accurate to think of village as a verb. Huh. Nice. Right. To village. Uh-huh. Right. And so that is sort of, a, it speaks to it as an achievement, right? The distinction between, you know, community could be, you get to borrow, you know, sugar from your neighbor, you know, and, and a lot of people would say, oh, that's community. And I struggled in a, in a suburban neighborhood, you know, in the past, trying to build real kinship with people in a, in a, in a really meaningful way you know, through potlucks and the rest, and, and nobody was into it, you know, because they had their own private lives, and they would still call that a great community. And so I really feel like there's a different distinction needed to speak to this sense of, no, 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 there's something else that, you know, really asks a lot, actually, yeah. you know, to, to go deep with people. But the rewards, and, and in some sense, the almost political, ethical, spiritual necessity, actually, to, to deepen with others is actually so necessary in these times. Thank you. That, that was beautiful. I think you have just catalyzed something beautiful for me. The co-creational energy here is potent because um, we're writing a book now, and our website is, you know, timefortribe.com. Andrew Harvey was here about two years ago. He was in town, and one of my friends knew him, so they brought him over and, you know, had lunch at our house, and we told him about time for tribe. And he said, uh-uh, it should be time to tribe. And that's what you, Ian, just said, is turn the word tribe into a verb. So uh, based on this conversation, our book might just change its title to Time to Tribe. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your inspiration, brother. That was gorgeous. My my pleasure. (laughs) The divine spark is is here. Happening right here as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, Bill, I really appreciate, you know, our conversation today and, you know, the work you've been doing over so many years and touching so many lives, men in particular, but also obviously much beyond. So yeah, I feel really grateful that uh, we had this moment today. Yeah, I do too. And I've been a fan of your work for so long. It's a treat to just kind of get to know you virtually. Well, thanks, Bill. My pleasure, Ian. (laughs) Blessings. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. And once again, please consider becoming a patron supporter of this podcast. Head to themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more.